brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechatsplus.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, four videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss, so become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. How's it going, people? From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood, and we've been around the block long enough to know that our world is much weirder than they'd have us believe within our modern mainstream reality tunnel. And we're rarely presented with the worldviews that dominate indigenous cultures, secret societies, and the esoteric texts that prominent people have valued throughout history and continue to seek out today. And it's this greater understanding of our natural systems and the power of consciousness that unlocks the esoteric toolbox individuals can use to enrich their own lives and pursue their own true will. A threat to any tyrannical system of oppression if there's ever been one. So despite the corporate sorcerers of Hollywood and Silicon Valley working hard to make sure we continue to worship at the altars of superheroes and smartphones, all while ignoring the greater significance of this power, I suggest an alternative in the work of today's guest, Mark Stavish. We've heard the more magically inclined preach the power of thoughts and ideas and their ability to grow and even come alive in the world beyond our eyes often telling us that the more attention they can absorb, the more real a collective thought form can become. But the books breaking down exactly how to wrap your head around this, how they affect us, and what we can do about it are few and far between. But lucky for us, Mark has recently written a new book doing exactly that, called Egregores, the Occult Entities that Watch Over Human Destiny. And he's just the guy to do it too, because Mark has a lifetime's worth of study and experience in magic, spirituality, comparative religion, philosophy, and mysticism with an emphasis on traditional Western esotericism. He's also the founder and director of the Institute of Hermetic Studies and the Louis Claude de St. Martin Fund, and author of 26 books and counting. So let's just get into it. Bend the knee, people, for the alchemical author and esoteric egregore educator extraordinaire, the seer of unseen influence, Mark Stavish. Welcome to THC. Well, thank you very much, and I love that introduction. I, I've got to get that put on a calling card. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I appreciate that. And it is a serious pleasure to have you here. You've done a lot of really interesting work that I hope we can touch on. But your latest book, Egregores, crossed my path right at a time when I'm really thinking a lot about the power of thought forms and just how important it is to develop a strong and fortified mind. And it's very 
fortuitous that we can talk about exactly that. Of course, you refer to egregores in the simplest terms as an autonomous psychic entity created by a collective group mind. I've also heard you say that they function as social control mechanisms. But let's elaborate on that for the uninitiated. What more can you say to flesh out what is and isn't an egregore? Well, there's two aspects of it. And one of them is the traditional view. And this is where, in fact, I got an email this morning regarding it from, I think it was Anthony Peake regarding some research he's doing or one of his friends is doing. Mm. And that was about the term egregores and how it appears in the Book of Enoch, the Ethiopian Book of Enoch. So you have this traditional view in which the egregore is an actual spiritual entity or being and has a psychic conduit or umbilical cord, if you will, which is really a good way of thinking about it, both a wormhole and umbilical cord. I just thought that up right now. We can mark the date and time on it. (laughs) That's the way we want to think of it, because it both involves the movement back and forth of energy, which would be the umbilical cord aspect, but also information and consciousness, which would kind of be the wormhole aspect. So you want to really wrap your mind around that. So... The what's on one end is humanity down here on terra firma with its cults and worship and deities, and on the other end is some spiritual force or intelligence, which is the recipient of that devotion and those energies, which in turn then provides whatever the contractual agreement is in return. This is the way traditional religions work. This is the way a lot of magic works. Hence the old notion of you know signing a contract with whatever, whatever the devil or some entity or some other such thing. So you have this notion of exchange. Mm -hmm. Now, within that, you also have the other notion of, well, the collective energies of the people, because anything that's being fed usually wants to grow and wants more. Notice that with everything. That's the great power of Jupiter in both its blessing and its curse. Mo, mo, mo. (laughs) You know, whatever you feed, you get more of. Okay. Mm -hmm. So we have to be careful about that. We have to watch where our energy is going. Now, on the more non-traditional and modern sense of the word, we still have that collective notion, but we don't have the metaphysical view. That is, we don't have the notion that there's something or some intelligence. We want to call it extraterrestrial for a nice confusing term. Mm-hmm. We want to call it metaphysical or angelic, whatever you want to call it. It's not there. Instead, what we have is more of a Jungian collective consciousness or collective awareness, which is kind of abstract. We don't really know what it is, but it's like the old definition of pornography. What did the Supreme Court Justice say? It's hard to define, but I know it when I see it. It's the same thing with the collective consciousness. We often can't always define it the way we can begin to see it in action. Mm-hmm. Okay, And that's what the book is trying to help people do, is to look at what is their relationships to different groups. And, of course, we deal primarily with spiritual groups or religious or initiatic and political groups because... Those are the most powerful and strongest in people's lives. But this can be anything. This can be your family group. This can be your bowling league, the PTA, anything that you're involved with that has really two or more gathering together in my name, and we'll get into that, begins to form some kind of collective consciousness or baseline of interaction. And that's why we can begin to describe egregores as social control mechanisms. Because whenever we're within a group, what does it do? It begins to inhibit our movement of action. It begins to define what is acceptable and unacceptable, sometimes very loosely. 
Mm. And sometimes, as we can see with things like political correctness, very strongly. Mm-hmm. Well, it definitely does seem like sometimes ideas have a life of their own, especially in the context of a lot of people focusing on one thing. And you hear people who come out of cults or like really radical political groups where they say, man, I don't know what happened. Like I was just, you know, interested in this subject matter. And then all of a sudden it pivoted and went a direction I didn't expect. And I realized, oh, my God, uh, this is not what I signed up for. And now I'm in a cult or this group's doing dark things. And that's kind of something you talk about in the book is just in the same way that we think of a baby coming to being in the mother's womb and then it spins off into its own independent entity. Sometimes egregores can do a similar thing. And I that was the first thing I thought of is the way people sometimes describe cults that they're in and they didn't even realize it. Ideas can morph and change and take you to places you didn't expect. Very much so, and, and that's the whole point. Mm-hmm. This is not the New Age movement I signed on for. <laughs> no. Right. This is not the utopian paradise I was promised. And this happens all the time. This is the point. People, it's really surprising, <laughs> because for people who are all about enlightenment and openness and truth and honesty, the greatest sack of liars you'll find are in the spiritual and contemporary New Age movements. Mm. And I mean across the board. That includes those people doing psychic research, which there aren't that many anymore, but parapsychology, all these fields of so-called spiritual exploration. They all exist in these little bubbles. I just had this conversation this last weekend with quite a few people at the Institute for Hermetic Studies at our annual conference. They love the conference because we managed to dovetail so many different disciplines and subject matters together under the rubric of Hermeticism, both classical and modern. So we do justice to everything in that regard. You go to these other conferences and events, and all these people are working in their own bubbles, and that's an egregore, a bubble. It It isolates you from actually communicating with other people. And yet at the same time, theoretically, the reason they went into these studies is to better understand themselves, better help humanity, blah, 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 blah. But at the end of the day, it really becomes these very isolated echo chambers of very narrow opinions and views. So, you know, that's what the book is about, just sitting back and saying, look, are you getting what you were promised? (laughs) And if not, here are your options. Right. But it's powerful and strong. These social control mechanisms, these egregores, these collective views, they're so insidious. Like you said, you just start out with all this enthusiasm. Wow, look at this new guru I got, or look at this group I joined, or look at this lodge I'm in, or these studies. And next thing you know, it's 10 years later. And you say, geez, how did I get here? <laughs> Amen. You know, I definitely learned that you have to have your philosophy and ideas locked pretty tight, the hills you're prepared to die on, because sometimes you get into a new worldview or something, and it takes a long time to unpack what's down beneath all those layers of PR that make an idea seem attractive, and then you get way down to it, and you're like, this does not agree with me. (laughs) It can happen to people. And As you say in the book, we've got sports teams, fan clubs, pop culture trends, political movements, cults, corporations. All of these things are examples of 
uh, a collective focusing their attention on one thing, and that energy tends to well up. We've all heard sayings like, you are the company that you keep, and that's sort of in reference to egregorian influence, couldn't you say? Oh, yes. Within Buddhism, particularly Tibetan Buddhism, they have emphasis on what they call the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha. The teacher, which in this case is the Buddha, the awakened teacher. The Dharma, the teaching. Of course, notice they're not like in Hinduism and the other Indian philosophies. You have the Dharmas, where every individual has their Dharma. Here it's singular. Buddhism is even very, in that sense, a control mechanism with its Dharma, the singular. And then you have the Sangha, or the community of practitioners. And that has different meanings on different levels, too. But on the most basic level, that's what it is. And you see that in various esoteric groups. You have the where people greet each other as frater and soror, or brother and sister, you know. And, of course, the master of the lodge. And then you have the volume of the sacred law, the volume of the teachings. And often these are meant to be symbolic that help us along the way, but they can become very literalized. Mm -hmm. You know, they can become very concrete for people in some ways, in a very negative way. And suddenly, you know, you join this group to find yourself. And, you know, the joke in Freemasonry is I joined to find the secret teachings of the universe, and I ended up being given an apron and doing chicken dinners and fish fries. Mm -hmm. So at least in that regard, Masonry is pretty benign. But within a lot of other groups... It's not always that case. Right. And at the least of it, you find yourself just being a PR person, building the franchise, trying to recruit new members all the time. It's kind of an occult version of Amway. You know, you just people want to avoid you because you're trying to hand them, a, you know, an application or something or pull them in. Mm -hmm. And even that we can laugh about because we've been there and we've done that and we've seen that. But then we move into some other groups where it can become very destructive and insidious. Mm -hmm. So even though we do see things like people who get insanely obsessed with a sports team or a religion or even a show or something like that, we can see that. But most people today probably don't have a spiritual context or a framework to think of some unseen entity they're feeding or an idea coming alive. And it just doesn't jive with the modern materialist worldview. Of course, that worldview is greatly flawed, but can you give us some context for the way this works and the overarching worldview that might help us to rationalize the concept of ideas becoming real or sentient? It just seems so foreign to modern ears, I think, unless they're looking in places that are outside of the mainstream. I think we have two examples, one which is very early in the book which is how in the classical world, the priests of, say, ancient Rome would have these symbolic, we see them as symbolic, but they saw them as literal battles with the gods of the opposing city or, or that was going to be attacked or the opposing army. And these could be worked out even with small models in some ways. Someone said to me, and I think it was Patsaluski, who said to me that Enochian chess was like that, that in the Golden Dawn system, Enochian chess was meant to actually be a movement of forces using the actual pieces. Hmm. So we often don't think in those terms. You know, we go to church, said that last night to someone, you know, he was talking about their ministry. I said, they say their prayers, but they don't actually expect anything to happen. I'm dealing with a minister right now, an Episcopal priest who told me he would help me out with the family. And, you know, it's 
several weeks or going on a month later and he's not returning my text. <laughs> so if he's listening, return my text. Because what happens is when they finally get involved in something metaphysical, they get frightened. Mm. I understand that. <laughs> you know, in the modern world, they say it, but they don't believe it. In the ancient world, they said it and more or less believed it. And that was not everyone. You have to understand that not everyone believed in an afterlife. Not everyone believed in the metaphysical. But it was dominant. Nick Siegert from Ephrata, the uh, Pennsylvania community where the pietist community was during the 17th and 18th century, well, even in the 19th century, he was presenting at the IHS conference this last weekend. And he gave a very good world example of the worldview of Ephrata. Because you have to understand, their worldview goes back to the Middle Ages, in which the world is alive with these streams of interconnections and energies. Mm. Now, we call that the doctrine of correspondences or associations. Well, my heart has some relationship to the Son, and the Son, of course, has relationship to Christ. Hence, the heart of Christ is in me. You see how simple those words are. We hear them, but we often don't really understand. They're taken quite literally in different times and places. So we have to understand the world is seen as interconnected and filled with a host of beings, both visible and invisible, not simply what we can sense with our five physical senses and understand with our very oft-times physical mind. Then we have the example of Alexander David Neal, and this has been quoted quite often, and there is some debate about its authenticity, but it still fulfills the function. Okay, I'll let scholars argue about it. It fulfills the function of the notion of thoughts becoming corporeal, tangible, and things. And of course, her famous story of how she created a thought form that at first other people could begin to sense, then they could begin to see it, and then it wouldn't go away, and she had to dissolve it. And it was a great deal of effort. And we're told in various occult practices, not just within that aspect of her experiences in Tibetan Buddhism, particularly all throughout the yogas, all the Indian yogas tell us the same thing. Hmm. Magical Taoism tells us the same thing. All these other things that whatever the mind focuses its energies on, we either bring to ourselves, that is, like a magnet, if you will, for lack of a better description, or actually create and bring into being. We actually create it because according to the ancient cosmologies, in the beginning there was nothing, and out of nothingness, things came into being. Mm -hmm. And that humanity, or each individual, each man, each woman, who Crowley wonderfully said is a star, is a microcosm of that greater universe or macrocosm. So we have the same powers and abilities within us to create. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It says in the New Testament, these things which I do, so shall greater things shall you do. Know that ye are gods. And I think the word is Elohim. Elohim is creative beings. So that's the framework. Now, what can happen is a perfect example. I was at a building a few days ago. It's said to be the most haunted house in America. And someone wrote to me and said, when they knew the owner back in the 80s, they never had any problems there. Now, the owners from the early 70s did, and there's some stories around it. And owners later on did, but the woman who lived there for the longest time didn't seem to have any problems. And someone suggested that there may never have been a haunting there or something wasn't really going on. But having all these ghost hunters come in there and stir things up creates a haunting. Mm. 
Why? It's like anything. People don't think about it. They don't have a good metaphysical view. They can't understand this stuff. Now, if I take a plate of food and put it on my porch, should I be surprised if I attract the neighborhood cat or uh, the groundhog or squirrels or even flies and mosquitoes? I wouldn't be surprised if that happened. No. But why am I surprised if I go into a building or someone's house and start looking for ghosts and then suddenly find them? Right. Even if they weren't there to begin with. Well, I like this kind of perspective, and you can understand why they wouldn't teach this worldview in public schools. It's interesting that you mention Buddhism, and you talk about it a lot in the book, as well as all the drama within Buddhism, but you mention it as a control mechanism, and I've thought of that for a while just because I'm always skeptical of any thing that permeates a culture completely, and that obviously made the rounds in the East, and this phrase, life is suffering, well, that's very convenient, I think, for a, a government to want its people to believe. It just seems like a very defeatist idea. And I know there's nuance to it the more you get into it. But just at the base level, to think of Buddhism, the worldview as life is suffering 101, I've always kind of had an odd reaction to that. I don't I don't feel like that's the best way to look at the world. Maybe you're going to bring suffering into your world more than you need to if you just constantly think about that phrase. Well, there is nuance to it and and of course, you're living in Southern California in 2010, 2015, 2019, you have a different view. <laughs> that's true. Everyone wants to live in California, right? <laughs> I would say here uh life is costly, not necessarily suffering, but they're not that far apart sometimes. No, they're not. They're not. <laughs> suffering changes from person to person. Life is suffering because people think rich people don't suffer. I, I've known a lot of rich people, and they suffer. Mm -hmm. They suffer tremendously. And someone says, oh, but that's suffering. That's not suffering. Well, it's a matter of your emotional response. Right. I mean, you should have seen the look on her face when I said to a client, you know, you understand now that your daughter's will never make the money required to maintain their standard of living on their own based on their education. Mm -hmm. And they will marry for money to maintain it. And the response is, I know. I've talked to my husband about that. I know. Damn. That stings, I bet. That's suffering. That's suffering on a different level than not being able to eat today. Or as we often have to say to folks, I, I know a lot of teachers, and teachers just love to bitch and complain. Are we allowed mm. to say that word? Because tell you. Absolutely. Any word we want. They love to complain. It's like Mercury. What is it? It's like Virgo's on overdrive. Life is not a matter of something and going down a checklist. Right or wrong, right or wrong. And sometimes you have to say, you know, you've got a first world problem. It's not that bad. <laughs> you know, that's our joke. But still, it's suffering. And we have to go through these one by one and remove suffering from our lives, even on the most infinitesimal level. And how do we do that? And how do we deal with it? So we realize that most of the things which we suffer from is a matter of perspective. It's true. This wealthy mother suffers because she cares more about the social standing and, and the ease, or she's beginning to have that conflict. She suffers because she knows that 
a meaningful relationship is important, but there's all this social standing, blah, and all this. Okay, fine. You've made your choices. Deal with it. Mm. Yeah? Yeah. Virgos suffer because everything isn't always in its place where it should or ought to be. Well, you know what? Not everything is should or ought. Some things just aren't. Get over it. Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, there is always hope out there. I'm sure my parents had conversations about how screwed I was going to be. And look at me now. You know, things things can happen. So, I mean, I guess there's always a reason to be hopeful, even in a debt-based system of rule. Well, there is reason to be hopeful because it's a matter of you making decisions. There's always debt-based. Everything is debt-based. It's just a matter of how we shape that debt because debt is just another way of just saying cause and effect. I mean, karma isn't just a matter of debt, but to some degree it is. It's about energy up or energy down. Are you high energy or are you low energy? Mm. You know, what is the relationship to people? Is it one where, you, you know, in a sense there's an owing or a receiving? So it has many subtleties to it. Karma has many subtleties. But primarily, it's about cause and effect. So, if you want to get out of a debt-based society, then you know you're going to have to pay the price of that. Or if you're going to live in a debt-based society and actually believe that you have some obligation to pay those debts off, <laughs> you know, then that's another system altogether. Right. Okay. I mean, you have to begin to make decisions. Each of us. When I say you, you is each of us individually, and we do that by analyzing what are we told is what we're going to get out of this relationship in this group. So if I join the Rotary and I go to these monthly meetings or bi-weekly meetings or my Kiwanis group, do I get what I'm told out of that? If I go to church, do I get the salvation? What is salvation? Do I look around and see that these things are being fulfilled in the people there? And the same thing with occult groups or esoteric groups or spiritual groups of any kind. So suffering is a part of life, but at the same time, it's extremely relative to each and every one of us individually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I don't get too hung up on that life is suffering thing. I think for me, when I look at all my problems, and I have many of the same as just the rest of you out there, life is still pretty good. Amen. <laughs> Cheers to that. And yeah. to play devil's advocate, you know, I read a book like this and I start to feel like the old ones are everywhere, that we just have all these living thought forms in an invisible plane draining us and influencing us. And of course, that is more of the traditional view. But <laughs> I start to feel a bit claustrophobic. Yet nine out of 10 people that I know would probably dismiss this idea if I brought it to them. How can they be so powerful, but also go so unnoticed? Well, several things. First of all, you are correct. They are everywhere. I mean, look, your body is filled with parasites of different kinds. You just don't know about them. You've got bacteria in your gut that works for you and works against you in all sorts of places, and you pay no attention to it. You're oblivious to its existence. True. The little mites that look like ancient dinosaurs or something out of a sci-fi movie that live in your eyebrows. You know, that kind of stuff. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. So... (laughs) People think that they are what they think they are. That's part of the problem, too. They don't actually know themselves. That's part of the problem. That's a big part of what this is all about. Know thyself. So you have to first realize you are not, for the most part, what you believe yourself to be. That's just an aspect of it, but not the totality of it. So you are surrounded by these thought forms all the time. Many of them come and go like soap bubbles. Many of your own thoughts come and go like soap bubbles. It's not a big deal. But you are surrounded by these. And often you don't really realize until you turn off the phone and go camping for a weekend or a day. 
One of the most amazing things I remember is 9-11. What was it, two or three days without any air travel? How quiet it was. Yeah. Many people remember that, how quiet it was. And then you, when you're quiet, you get to recognize your own thoughts. And that's when people get scared, when they recognize <laughs> their own thoughts. they got to be alone with their own mind, and that's frightening. Right. Can't drive without the radio on, can't do the dishes without the TV on, you know, can't clean the house without some kind of noise. Yeah. I had one radio show host go off on me. I mean, he just couldn't handle this discussion. And I, I wanted to ask him, well, who's your audience? Because, you know, he read the book in theory. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. you know, But he just couldn't handle it. And I said, look, people have free will to some degree. Right. If I run out this window, I can almost guarantee you I will be hitting the ground. Mm -hmm. So I said, oh, well, what about psychic powers and levitation? I said, well, show me. You're saying they don't exist. I didn't say that. He had the, the, the logical error. I didn't say that. I said, show me, demonstrate it. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying it can't be done, but I'm not going to tell you it can be. Right. I'm going to say it's based on basic theories. It's a possibility, but not necessarily a probability. And it only becomes a probability under these conditions. And that requires that the individual undertaking it has an understanding of their own mind and is able to apply the powers of their mind, which is in theory what all these psychic and occult and metaphysical schools and religions are about helping us to understand the nature of our own mind, our own life, and to apply those powers in a healthy and creative fashion. Mm -hmm. But because we get sidetracked or distracted along the way, as we said earlier, years or decades go by and we realize this is what I signed up for. So people get scared because it's easier to buy into the party line, join this and be part of the Illuminati or some secret brotherhood or rulers of the cosmos or bodhisattvas, and your life will be fine, or you'll be good no matter what happens. Right. Rather than actually looking at the hard reality of why you're not achieving what you want in life, or why your relationships are crap all the time, <laughs> or why you have drug and alcohol problems. Yes, and to me this doesn't really affect the free will issue, just to say that there are unseen forces out there. I mean, you can say you have free will... In a world of just people, it doesn't mean that people and groups aren't trying to influence you and sway you and get their hooks into you. You just have to throw in the added ingredient of invisible beings as well. I mean, there's a lot of influence out there, more than you can see. It doesn't mean that you don't have the free will to go with one or go against another. It's just nature of the game. I mean, it's not like you can avoid influence. That's exactly it. That's the reality of it. It's like astrology. Some people are affected by astrology far greater than others. Hmm. Far greater. You know, some people are almost very minimal effect. For some, a tremendous effect. It's like an insult. I can walk right up to you and intentionally seek to offend you. And you may laugh it off and not care. <laughs> other people, even the slightest thing out of order, gets them up in arms. Right, that's true. They're, they're hypersensitized to be irate. But that's an egregore. You know, you're trained to be that way. That's the social control mechanism. Anytime you see something that you're told is wrong, whatever that happens to be, you're supposed to be upset. And that's the whole point. All of these things have to do with controlling your emotions, because emotions are the psychic energy of life. They're the psychic energy of motivation in anything we do. We get up in the morning and go to work because we love something. We may not love what we do, but we love the benefit of what that will bring to us. And whether that's money to 
have a good life and take a vacation or to send your kids to college or to go to the racetrack and drink and hang out with prostitutes. You love that. You get it. You understand. The emotional energy that drives you to act to achieve a goal. Mm -hmm. Nature doesn't care what that goal is. It doesn't. That's your choice. That's about the beauty of living here in, in duality and in, in terra firma. Mm -hmm. That's the freedom part. But the more we do X, whatever that happens to be, the more habits we develop, the more unconscious functions we develop, and then they begin to dominate our life. Mm. That's why you're told to separate yourself out and analyze and do all this stuff. Well, it's no different. You know, you go to work and you have a bunch of folks you hang out with and you like them. And that kind of dominates your thinking and your attitude. You go to a church or some spiritual circle or whatever, and that dominates it in some way. And then you go to maybe a political group, and that dominates it in another. And suddenly all these things bleed in. And, and that's when we stop having our own thoughts. That's when we stop having our own choices because we've opened ourselves to too much influence. Mm -hmm. And we got to walk away. That makes a lot of sense to me. You also, in the book, flesh out the definition by saying that egregores can also be the home or conduit for a specific psychic intelligence of a non-human nature connecting the invisible dimensions with the material world in which we live. You go on to say, this, in fact, is the true power of the ancient cults and their religious magical practices. That's provocative. You do talk about some in the book, but can you talk to us a little bit about a couple of these old cults you're referring to as examples? Well, we can. I think any of them. You have the neo-pagans and the pagan revivalists who want to worship Hecate or Toth or you know, Apollo or something like this. The idea is, is that those beings are real entities, that they exist on some level. They're a real intelligence that you can communicate with, just as we're talking on the phone we can create a mechanism of communication, a psychic telephone line. But it's more than just a telephone. It's a veritable transporter, okay? Mm -hmm. <laughs> we, can, we can move that intelligence from location and cosmos to location and cosmos, even to the point of corporeality, hence the notion of the thought forms, or evocation to appearance, those types of things. But another example would be within Amork. You know, Harvey Lewis talked about having the vision of a entity or a spirit or a being amorcus. And you see the same thing in the Mormons. The founder of the Mormon church had a vision of a being, okay, that revealed itself to him and revealed things to him. So you have these revealed religions all the time. Of course, Muhammad supposedly had Gabriel talk to him. But we don't know what these beings are. Right. I mean, when we're just told after the fact, and you take it after several hundred or thousand years that, okay, this is what they are, but we don't really know. So then a movement begins around it and feeds energy into it. And what is that energy? It's primarily the energy of life, which is emotions. But in some instances, we see the energy of life is also what? The life is in the blood. So you had a lot of blood sacrifices back in the ancient period, too. Mm-hmm. And like the words of any modern politician, don't always take them at face value. Mm-hmm. Don't always take them at face value. And it's also, like politics, all religion or esotericism is local. Mm -hmm. That's why these massive worldwide movements 
in order to become worldwide and massive because of the differences in times and places and cultures, become increasingly homogenized. And in order to maintain that homogeneity, either dilute it, that is, they have to go to most common denominator, lowest common denominator for, for connectivity, or they have to become control mechanisms. Hmm. Well, you know, we have talked to a lot of guests about the driving force between a lot of secret societies or esoteric orders being an ethereal being, kind of like you mentioned. And a lot of the time, that seems to be the case. You write about the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn as an example, and you mention its egregore, or what they call the link, their connection mm -hmm. to this overarching spiritual entity, and that adepts can rise to the portal grade. And this entity, once accepted into the body, is impregnated into the adept for life or until they shut it down. And wow, I mean, that seems like a pretty serious commitment. Well, all you have to do is look at baptism. That's what baptism is. Ah. At the conference this weekend, we had Stephen Davies, who some of your listeners may know from his work on the Gospel of Thomas, but he spoke about the spirit possession in early Christianity, which is, I believe, the title of one of his books. And, of course, the notion of that Holy Spirit. It's a spirit. It's a form of spirit possession that comes into the person. It's not just an idea. And you always see that spirit possession anymore, I believe, in the Pentecostal churches. That's the only place where you really see the notion of it. And they're marginalized, of course, for whatever reasons. And you see that notion of spirit possession where else? In voodoo. Right. You see it hinted at, hinted, like in Servants of the Light, you know, where Dolores Ashcroft Nowicki, who I did an interview with years ago, and it's a very lengthy one, you can read it online, you know, talks about her contact. So this fully contacted mystery schools, whatever that means. And what is this contact? You know, does it take over the leader? Does it overshadow them? Hmm. We see spirit possession in Tibetan Buddhism all the time, even though it's not talked about as such. Because it's sanitized for Western consumption. You know, these white non-practicing Jewish and Catholic converts might not take too well to giving their trust funds up once they find out what's really going on. <laughs> this is a very real thing, at least within that viewpoint. I'm not saying it actually happened. I'm saying that's the view of what's actually happening in many instances. So I'm going to put that qualifier on it. That's the nature of it, that you take this into you. Mm -hmm. Because it's the power of the Holy Spirit that gives the power of healing. Raising the dead and doing all these things. Well, how does that happen? Well, at baptism. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. And sometimes you look at an organization and on the surface, they've got a lot of PR out there. But then you look at some other things they're responsible for, like, you know, the Catholic Church and all the sexual scandals, as well as hiding Nazi gold and that kind of stuff, and you start to wonder, what kind of entity really is at the top of this thing? Like, what am I feeding? What kind of energy is going into this collective group? And sometimes it's hard to really know. Well, I think that your question is a good one, but it's also not a question of entity, but entities. Mm. People struggle for control. Why do we think it's any different on the invisible? Ah, that could be true for sure. If it's as above, so below, and as below, so above, why are we thinking that somehow it's different? 
you also have the factor that you say some of these entities can grow to a point that they take on a life of their own and they kind of become independent. So you have that in the mix too. You have the possibility that there is a power struggle on the ethereal plane to gain control of a certain group's energy. And you also have the factor that sometimes a being might grow and say, you know what, now we're going to go this direction. And it's just, it's a lot to, to try to take in and parse through. Well, there's a perfect example of that, not just in how spiritual movements, and I'll give Christianity as an example, but I'll give three of them. You know, if we look at Christianity in its earliest days to about a hundred years later, we see its strongest in terms of this spirit presence and the miracles and the reception of the Holy Spirit in the first century, the first hundred years. And then it begins to flatten out and homogenize. Okay, we see the same thing. We'll talk about Amorth. Amorth built a 108-year cycle into itself for self-destruction. You know, when is it strongest? It was strongest from about 1915 to about 1965. It was really strong up until about 85 too. And then as the one grand secretary said to me, it was on a downward cycle. And then we see the schism of 91. And then, of course, from 91 to now, it's flat. It's like old soda water. But, of course, they have that cycle. You see Yogananda with his self-realization fellowship. He said in his writing, and this is 100 years from now, you won't recognize this, and you'll have to start it all over from scratch. What happened after his death? You know, we think that this is just a matter of people vying for control, but it's more than that. There's invisible forces as well at work. So you see, I think it was Swami Kirananda, I believe. You know, he went off and started his own thing. He's a very nice fellow, and he's been very successful at it. I think he died a few years back. And then you have, you know, the self-realization movement, which many people recognize is not the same as it was even in the 70s or 80s. I was in it in the early 80s. It was wonderful. Hmm. So these movements, there's a cycle at work here. So those who are interested in cycles and astrology can begin to look at this too. And as you look at planetary cycles, then you're looking at planetary intelligences. Okay, planetary <laughs> yeah. entities, planetary deities, or whatever you want to call them, not just as abstract ideas, but as very real energy, intelligence, and matter at work. <laughs> I love it. The good example here of movement of growing and taking on a life of its own, the name escapes me at the moment. I think it was the Holy Order of Mans, but I'm not certain. They were a wonderful New Age movement, extremely popular. I think they even had a successful commune. And then in the 70s or early 80s, they all just converted to Eastern Orthodoxy. No one <laughs> saw that coming. But I understand why. If you look at now, Eastern Orthodoxy is extremely popular in the United States. Conversion to Orthodoxy is extremely popular among many in the occult and esoteric movements, particularly as they grow older and they want something that is stable that has a mystical element to it that they can relate to. But there's an example. They go from this whole New Age cycle to boom, orthodoxy. Right. And it, I like when you talk about that in the book with different secret societies and esoteric orders, that there seems to be a life cycle, a life cycle to ideas just as there is to people. There is a, a peak, a prime. You know, we say people are in their prime, and then a slow fizzle out. And 
That's the same, it seems, on the ethereal plane, in the realm of ideas, and in life. So it's really not that hard to conceive of when you think about it all as just there is a life cycle to energy and there is a, an ebb and a flow to potency. And you mention egregores in the book in the context of families who build up a lot of wealth or power over generations and point out the importance of ancestor offerings as a means to strengthen the energy of your own family name. And I think that's a pretty powerful idea. We sometimes think a lot about the elite and these Rockefeller, Rothschild, DuPont, Windsor families. And sometimes we get a victim's mentality of, well, they're so far ahead in the game and they've made all the rules and we're just fucked. But, you know, the reality is maybe we should use some of these own tools to build some energy potency around our own family name. We should probably dust off the old family crest, too, if we can. But how would we use this knowledge to our own family's advantage? Well, that's just it. Modern esotericism is a sad joke. It's a shadow of itself, even in the modern era. It has is, is fallen so far from self-realization and self-actualization, meaning action. You know, <laughs> actualization means action and doing stuff, to just a pitiful vacuum of left-wing politics and victim mentality. Mm-hmm. That's what it's fallen into. That's why it's so impotent. That's why most modern spiritual movements are shadowy collectivist doctrine is the nature of it. That's why the religions have done it. Christianity, for the most part, it doesn't have anything. That's why orthodoxy is the thing they go to, because that still has some oomph to it. Hmm. Most of these movements, just the Methodist Church, the Episcopal Church, pick a church, anyone, what are they? They're just social action movements. That's all they're concerned with. And the Unitarians are the worst. They're a sad joke when it comes to actually being universalist. As even a 12-year-old said to me, everyone's welcome here as long as they're not conservative. <laughs> you know, there were a few other words, too, as long as they're not straight. But, you know, when a 12-year-old can notice this, it's that obvious. Mm -hmm. This is all they become. And people will tell me the same story. You know, they left the church. They left because they were just tired of being preached to about politics. No action, no real self-action, no self-development. And in fact, I can think of several Unitarian churches where the people in charge were certifiably mentally ill. Now, I want that to sink in, talking about spirits. You're letting someone who is diagnosed with a mental illness be your essential spiritual guide. Okay, I mean, <laughs> mental illness is to be treated, but not to be followed. <laughs> Sometimes it seems like a fine line between mental illness and some type of clairvoyance or spiritual connection. Well, this wasn't clairvoyance or spiritual connection. This is nothing <laughs> but whining and complaining. Fair. So you know what it is by the fruits. That's the other thing I said early in the beginning. What were you promised? What do you get? What is the gap between them? And if the gap is too big, it's time to get out. Mm -hmm. See, this is just common sense. This isn't rocket science. This isn't even mysticism. Okay. Right. This is learning how to observe. And if you really want to be clairvoyant, you have to learn how to observe. Enlightenment is about observing reality as it is, not as we would like it to be, mm -hmm. as it is. And you can't begin to change your situation until you recognize it for what it is. You're in an abusive relationship. That's the reality. 
you submit yourself to these terrible experiences, and only you can get yourself out of it, whether it's with an individual, a family, or a group. Mm -hmm. Now you recognize that and you can make changes. You are poor because you're lazy. Not because of the environment you're in. Your environment is okay. Someone else may have a different environment, but they're not you. You refuse to get up and go to that job. I know that job doesn't pay well. I know you feel insulted by those wages. But it's a beginning. It's a start, and you can begin to do something with it. But sitting there feeling sorry for yourself doesn't help. Mm -hmm. Well, that's the point that I think a lot of listeners here are at, where they've started to recognize this kind of magical worldview, this alternative paradigm from anything they saw in public school or were taught along the way. And so they're like, okay, well, if this is the framework of reality, if ideas are real and egregores are real and, you know, this but is... But it takes work. This is the thing. It takes real effort. You have to stay focused on it and not give up. And this is where the parasites kick in. Do you understand? Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. If you're not controlling yourself, someone will. Someone will. That's right. You know, you can't just do it for five minutes a day and then go sit at the water cooler and complain to your friends or have little coffee clutches with your girlfriends or go to the bar and drink with your buddies and complaining. You have to stay focused on the goal. And that's what wealthy people do. That's what enlightened people do. They stay focused on the goal. That's what successful people do. You may not like their goal, but that's not the point. Nature doesn't care. It's not about what you like or dislike in others. It's about what you're doing for yourself. So if you want to take your family crest and use that as the sigil and the talisman, that's for you to do. That's how you can call in those ancient powers, those elemental powers and those planetary powers into your vitality, into your life, and purify your family line. But it's not the responsibility of the Rockefellers to do it. Right. Or the Kennedys. Or of anyone else that you haven't heard of but has well, of power. It's not their job. You may want them to. You may like them to. You see, that's falling into the trap of the egregore. That someone's going to save you. No one's coming to save you. <laughs> Harsh but true. No one. That's it. Now, it doesn't mean there isn't going to be help along the way. There are people like you who are going to put the word out. There are people like me who are going to put the word out. But Jesus only helped those who came to him for healing. He didn't go out of his way looking for trouble. The good Samaritan didn't go out looking for people to help and save. Mm -hmm. He helped who was right in front of him. And what we've done is we've created a context where we think it's our job to go out and save everyone, and it's not, because you can't. You can only do for another what you can do for yourself. So if you don't have enough self-awareness, then, well, that's all you can do. You can only do to the degree of your self-awareness and no more. Mm -hmm. And the more you fortify yourself, the more you work on yourself, the more things you're equipped to handle when they do come your way. And you can take better care of those people that you do care about, your friends and family, because you have cultivated enough strength and enough resources that you can help the people that you want to help. Exactly. And I think, you know, you touched upon something we didn't really talk about in the book, and maybe I should write something about this. I did a little bit in, in one essay, and it's about the family line, the influences of the ancestors have on us through genetics. Mm -hmm. I mean, people don't realize that the reason we're here today is because of all, all our ancestors survived. 
Yeah, that's a very powerful idea. I think about that sometimes that as weak as I might feel as as house caddy as I can be, uh, I am the product of many, many people who survive much harsher environments. And that's inside. Yeah. So bring it out. Put yourself under stress. Test yourself. Initiation, uh, esoteric initiation is about stress and testing. It's about overcoming fears. It's not about a safe environment. Anyone who offers you safe initiation is a liar or a fool. <laughs> Any initiation that you really have is going to be dangerous and difficult in a trigger moment in modern parlance. If an initiation doesn't trigger you, then you weren't initiated. You were ripped off. <laughs> yes. So you have a great idea there. People go out there. Create your family crest if you don't have one. Make sure it's balanced, meaning has all the qualities and elements to it. Make sure that you understand that you will have to undergo challenges to make this happen. You're not going to lift 100 pounds without first being able to lift 50 or 90. So you're going to have to work at this. You're not going to lift 200 without being able to do 100. So all of this is work. And people who are willing to do that, who accept the fact that you are a dead man walking, so just go ahead with it and do what you're going to do. And don't be concerned with other people's opinions. Just make sure that what you're doing is actually beneficial to you and bringing joy and happiness to your life and move forward. Mm -hmm. This whole book is about that, about learning how to balance relationships and know what they are so that you can build the life you want and not be sucked into these parasitical relationships by groups, mostly by groups. Amen. Yeah. And. I never like to make these conversations about me, but let's take this podcast, for example. We have tens of thousands of listeners, all focused on the same kinds of ideas week after week, hanging in there with me for years in some cases. Have we likely generated an egregore? Is there any way to really know? Could this sure. collective group focus more intention on creating a spiritual ally to further our causes and improve our successes? Sure you have. And you just have to act recognize. What are the subtleties of that egregore? In the beginning, you focused a lot on this kind of crazy conspiracy stuff. Mm -hmm. And I say crazy because it's not like conspiracies don't exist. They do. But the fact is, so what? I had one relative who was obsessed with these conspiracy theories. And I said to him, you know, the same thing I said to George Hansen, who wrote the book The Trickster and the Paranormal, a book every one of you listeners should read. Yeah. He was the only person that I'm aware of that actually worked in the 80s was full-time employed in psychic research at both Princeton and, and Ryan Research Center. So all this can be true. Let's assume everything you said to me is true. So what? <laughs> then what? You understand you, you've done all this energy, you've put all this into it, and all you've done is make yourself crazy. It's true. So my point is, the rules of the road are over the Temple of Apollo Delphi in ancient Greece. It was inscribed the injunction, know thyself. It was not inscribed, follow the party line, mm -hmm. or save humanity from itself, or fill whatever blank happens to be in there. If what you're doing is helping you to know yourself, then that's great. If it is taking away from your ability to have self-realization, that is knowledge, and then self-actualization, the ability to do something with it, then you have to reconsider that relationship. 
Well said. Mm. Well, I thought this was really fascinating, man. I'm sure people are going to be really jazzed up about it. You wrote a great book. Before we go, please take some time to tell them about your other books and maybe a bit about the Institute for Hermetic Studies. Everything can be seen on Amazon. We've got 25 or 8 or 30 books on there, depending on uh, many monographs from our course of instruction, study guides for a self-guided study course that we have. And Unfolding the Rose is the principal one in that, but Words of My Teachers is the overall guide that will take you all the way through it and tell you what to do at self-paced so you can do it at your own pace. And then there's Light on the Path, which is a four-year course we ran on alchemy. That's, again, a study guide, so you have to look at the syllabus and the footnotes in there, and you can work yourself through that self-paced course at your own leisure. And all of the books then reference back to one another, so you'll know how to use them if you get those books. But Egregores is probably the most important one, along with one we need to get a new edition of, a new edited one, because we had so much trouble getting it out, was Between the Gates. That's probably one of the most important books out there, and I don't say that lightly, but that's about lucid dreaming, astral projection, and the body of light in Western esotericism. That ties into what we were just talking about. And the Institute, we have some online material at YouTube, but we also have a conference once a year, which on Hermeticism-related topics. And this is not your average Hermetic conference where you're going to come in and there's going to be another class on how to read the tarot or basic astrology. We don't do that. We cover the ground that is not being covered, which is how Hermeticism, astrology, alchemy, Kabbalah interface with all these things we just talked about. How does this interface in the media? How is the media presenting it? How does this interface with psychic research and the people who are authorities in psychic research and who can tell us about what was going on or is going on in government ideas behind UFOs and paranormal phenomena. So we're working with all these different diverse groups. How does this interface with, as we said, the one presentation, spirit possession in early Christianity, academic research? So we're trying to show a mechanism of these activities. And to get this, they just have to subscribe to our blog, Vox Hermes, and they can find that on Blogspot, or they can just send us a email at info at hermeticinstitute.org, and we'll send them a nice form letter back with all sorts of information in it. Very cool. I saw some info about last year's conference on the website. Is there a date and location for this year's? Well, this year's just ended this weekend. Ah. 2019 <laughs> just ended last weekend, and I'm already working on next year's. So it'll probably be the last weekend in April. And are they usually on the East Coast? That's where we have them. That's where we are. We've got a lot of people who fly in from the West Coast. Now, of course, we're willing to do activities, but people got to sponsor it. So, <laughs> well, it's the reality in this field. It's quite fascinating. Everyone wants someone to fly out to the West Coast, but you know, okay, well, that means you organize it and you get people together. We'll help you. We'll walk you through it, and we'll help you do that. And that's an important part of interfacing and growing up, <laughs> learning how to organize events and play well with others. <laughs> it's yes. a very important and paying your own bills is a very important part in this field. That's where we're at on that. But we have a great program and at some point, hopefully we'll have the ability to record some of these events and make them available. But at this time, that's not happening. Right on. 
Well, this has been a lot of fun. I also was going to mention, you do say on the website, in, in terms of the Institute for Hermetic Studies, the goal is to promote the study of esoteric knowledge all out in the open, maintaining no orders, degrees, societies, or secrets. And I think people would like to know that little detail. It seems like you're one of the good ones, but thanks a lot for your time, man. Really provocative stuff. Keep doing what you do and take care out there. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And good luck to everyone listening. Abracadabra and hallelujah, good people of the digital landscape. How about that? <laughs> Dipping our higher side toe back in the deep and rich esoteric waters of the occult. I was really psyched about an egregore interview with Mark, and it didn't disappoint. It seems somewhat inevitable that egregores will be created when people collectively focus on things. It's not the only way, but that does seem to be a surefire way to breathe some life into the astral plane. We've talked so much about how ideas can be real. We've talked a lot about filtering things down from the etheric layer of reality. The concepts of the muse. I mean, this is all in the recipe that is our reality. It reminds me of another book, but I've actually tried to work out an interview with Mitch Horowitz about his book, The Miracle Club, and I haven't been able to do it, but the book is good regardless, and his Miracle Club is a call for readers to take a certain time of day and consciously send good vibes to the others who've read the book in a sort of loose arrangement, and I think that's a great idea. I asked a little bit about our egregore. It'd be nice if maybe he'd come and talk to me in my dreams and thank me for the life-giving essence in which we gave him. But I, I'm just saying, I think there might be some potential there. Of course, we're all listening to this at different times, but maybe right now or anytime you're listening to THC, just put some brain power out there to say... When anyone downloads a THC episode, yes, you hear a great show, but you're also subconsciously downloading the collective intention of the group to manifest our desires, to remove obstacles from our lives, to attract the things we want, and always in alignment with the greater good. Imagine the frequency of these episodes being pure, high-potency intentionality and subconscious success juice and as you listen you're wishing all the other listeners well and even if we don't know each other we can will ourselves to sync our energies with the collective well wishes of all of us and i understand these things are more potent when you don't think about yourself but we can jailbreak that by putting our good vibes into the collective audience into the audio file as a whole and then just being in that audience, and then just listening to that file. I'm obviously no expert, but think about that now, and anytime you listen to a Higher Side Chats episode in the future. It doesn't take much. I'm not asking you to make a pentagram, or draw some sigils, or craft a talisman just yet. <laughs> just simple well wishes that we all move into the lives we see in our dreams. And maybe... Maybe after tens of thousands of people do put in a little conscious attention, you might say, holy shit, I did get that promotion. I did find my perfect co-pilot for life. 
And if anything like that happens, do let me know. We should probably have a forum thread about it. And I think we already do feel a bit of kinship around this digital campfire. Talking about ways we've been kept down. Talking about things that have been kept out of our education. And maybe we have been doing that. Maybe this is the first time I've put a fine point on it, but why not? I'm really too ignorant of this whole thing to try and direct something formal, but on a casual basis, visualize the waveform of these higher side audio files being so damn full of good vibes and potent positive energy that you can feel it. Work yourself up a little bit when you're about to press play, because the theatrics seem to have an effect as well. And you can just know in your own mind without a doubt that you're bringing that power into the rest of your day, your week, whatever. I think it's a nice low maintenance way to test these theories. I didn't really expect to go on this tangent, but hey, we're here now and I'm putting in the mental sweat for you guys. Hopefully you're doing it for each other as well and just give it a little thought and THC episodes from now on, it can't hurt. But as far as this episode goes, man, I did think it was pretty unique and it got me thinking. And something we sort of glossed over that I did like from the book was the Tibetan doctrine of refuge. I think Mark did talk about it, but not by that name. But it's the idea that most people start developing themselves by putting their faith in a text or a historical doctrine say the Bible. And then once you familiarize yourself with a system, then maybe you move your faith to just your individual teacher who you know. And then once you've dealt with that for a while, you finally move to just faith in yourself. You shed the training wheels or the egregore of the system and all that baggage that's attached to the group. And eventually you can just take what you need, fold things of value into your own personal worldview or religion. And then maybe you are a bit more guarded from those collective thought forms that maybe aren't so good for you or contain all sorts of things that you weren't aware of. Look at Catholicism. Can little old use positive intention or coins on the collection plate really unravel the negative energy with that group? I think the damage is done. But what do I know? Just food for thought. Maybe literally. But in higher side news, we had a joint session last night where Shaman Janir joined me for the whole two and a half hours. And we took calls and had conversations with listeners on everything from water alchemy and UFOs to Bigfoot and the occult underpinnings of the unjustice system. It was a lot of fun. And as always, it's archived on the plus site under bonuses with all the others. The joint sessions are always on the 20th or 25th of the month, whichever isn't on a weekend at 7 p.m. Pacific time. And you can find the link an hour or so beforehand across social media or on the Plus website. It looks like June's joint session will be on the 20th and one day before the summer solstice. So there's that. I also just wanted to remind you that the new website is still coming. It's going to combine the free and plus sites and really just update the whole aesthetic and technical infrastructure and be more modern and attractive to new people. That's the hope. Make us look professional. 
And maybe you could put that intention out there for me, that this transition and implementation is smooth as silk, and it causes PLUS members to multiply beyond our wildest dreams. Why not? I think we'll all know if it goes smoothly or not, so there's really no getting around it. That said, of course, if you liked the first hour today, the second hour with Mark is a lot of fun. We got into Zenith Corporation, Zenner Cards, and Telephone Telepathy, Disney's influence in egregores, Grant Morrison and the Invisibles, Lovecraftian egregores, Plant and Mineral Alchemy, Israel Rigardi's experience in Practical Laboratory Alchemy, Spiritual Hygiene and Ritual Purification. That I thought was interesting. The idea that soldiers can't really come back into the community without some kind of purification ritual. We used to have parades for returning troops. You've seen the pictures. That kind of positive celebration actually is very important for their mental health and their transition back into the group. Think about how soldiers are today. They're largely broken, abandoned by government and community, and on the streets begging for change, or trying not to put a gun in their mouth, feeling alone. It's an ugly reality, but it does seem to be the experience a lot of those people feel, and while I'm not a big supporter of the military or violence or imposing the empire's will around the globe, there still should be some redemption or sense of reintegration. I don't know, but I thought that part was really interesting. And we also talked about how to determine if you have an entity attached to you or your home and Robert E. Howard. A wide assortment of diverse topics, as always, and I really love the alchemy topic. You know this, but see, when a guest comes to promote a book, we are going to talk about that book largely. But in the Plus Show, I got to ask about some of Mark's previous work, which has at times been about real mineral alchemy. And so that was really a fascinating section to me. But you know the drill. Sign up for Plus, support the show you love, and improve your own life. Maybe now more so than ever. Do check out Mark's book on egregores if you're interested in hearing more. And when you see his catalog of work, it's hard to not be impressed. So lucky us for getting him here. And I'll see you soon with another very wild and interesting ride on the higher side. I've done my part. Your move, egregores, tulpas, and other free-range thought forms roaming around the infinite. Your fucking move.